And as we prepare our own hearts to come to Your Word, Lord, we come as beggars who need to be fed. We ask for our daily bread, O Lord. We ask that You would nourish us, that You would edify us, that You would strengthen us, that You would convict us, or that You would comfort us. Lord, You know every need that we have, and Your Word can accomplish any work that You desire. And so we ask, O Lord, that You would work within us as we study Your Word, as we look at Your Word. We ask that You would show us once again our desperate need for Your grace. And we ask, O Lord, that You would give us the grace to not only be hearers, but to be doers of Your Word for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel, which is a few books into the Old Testament. You'll see that it's after Judges and then after Ruth. Uh, it's uh, just a few books in. We are in the fourth chapter of 1 Samuel, and this is our ninth lesson, I believe, in Samuel. We're, we're cruising right through. It should be about a two-year study um, through First and Second Samuel. Uh, but today we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 12 to 22. Uh, so if you have your Bibles open, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 12 to 22. It is so common to see people put their hope in all the wrong things. And that's exactly what we have seen so far in our book. In fact, that's what you see over and over in Judges. And remember, the first part of 1 Samuel is just a continuation of where judges left off. It's just so common for people to put their hopes and their dreams and their aspirations in all the wrong things. One of the things that Paul instructed Timothy when he wrote to Timothy was this. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that money is bad. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad to be wealthy. What it means is that it can be a very dangerous thing. (coughs) Excuse me. In fact, it becomes a dangerous thing when we fail to see that money or wealth is not something that we should be putting our hope in. It's not something that we should be putting our trust in. So in that sense, money or wealth is far, far actually inferior to God's promises. Uh, Money and wealth are uncertain, and God's promises and provisions are certain. Uh, At one point in Jesus' earthly ministry, you remember that a woman came to Jesus and she had been uh, suffering from some condition that had caused her to bleed for 12 years. And she had spent all the money that she had and all the resources that she had on doctors who were ultimately unable to do anything to remedy her condition. In fact, over the 12 years, not only had they not Uh, fixed her ailment, not only had they not cured her disease, her condition, whatever it may have been, but it actually kept getting worse and worse. 
And so Mark tells us in Mark chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I touch his garments, I will get well. Was she putting her hope in the right thing there? Was she doing something that was wise? Uh, Apparently it was. It was the right thing to do because she was instantly healed of her affliction. Now, don't get me wrong. That's not to say that doctors are bad. It's not to say that medical professionals are are bad. They they are a, a common grace, what we would call a common grace. That is, they're a gift from God that blesses all of humanity. You know, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, doctors and, and the medical field, it's a blessing to all of us. But as with so many things, it is very easy to go too far uh, with our hope and our trust in modern medicine. So at what point has it, has it crossed that line? At what point has it crossed the line where it's, it's just too much? I'd say the same with anything when it obscures our need to put our ultimate hope and our ultimate trust in God. Now, it might seem strange to say that Israel had actually crossed that line. They had obscured their own uh, ability to see their need for God with the Ark of the Covenant. That might seem strange, since God Himself had given them the Ark of the Covenant to represent His His presence, to represent His blessing upon them. That is, the Ark had obscured uh, their ability to discern their need for God. They trusted in the Ark, in the good gift that God had given them, instead of trusting in God. And yet we see people do the same kind of thing with all kinds of different things all the time. Uh, For some, they trust in medicine and science uh, or or technology or what have you to such an extent that they see no need for trusting in God. For others, maybe they trust in horses and and swords and chariots. Uh, But for others, maybe they just fail to see God as worthy of all honor, praise, and glory, and instead deem Him to be simply useful. Rather than seeing Him as worthy, they see Him as useful for their own plans, their desires, their ambitions. And that's what Israel had done in our study that we've seen with the Ark of the Covenant. So let me say this again for the sake of of emphasis. It is so common, it's natural in fact, for people to put their hope and trust in all the wrong things. But it's also common for people to even trust in good things, but for the wrong reason. And in the end, it's essentially no different. Our, our motives matter to God. He's looking at our heart, our attitudes, our motivations. It's important that our hope and our trust be in God and that it be in God for the right purposes. Because trusting in the wrong thing or trusting in the right thing but for the wrong reasons can only give a person the illusion of hope. The fourth chapter of 1 Samuel began with the Israelites getting absolutely decimated, obliterated out on the battlefield. And not just once, but twice. Uh, what a difficult thing it must have been for them to discover they could not manipulate God. 
that they couldn't just be, uh, you know, have, have God like as a, as a magic genie at their disposal for the sake of fulfilling all their ambitions. It wasn't that they were wrong to defend their land when the Philistines invaded. No, that where they went wrong was in thinking that the Ark of the Covenant um, was a guarantee of their victory. Uh, so they said to themselves back in may come along and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So their trust there isn't in God. Their trust there is actually in this box that we call the Ark of the Covenant. The first half of chapter 4 showed us the failure of carnal, godless religiosity. Rather than winning the battle against the Philistines with the Ark of the Covenant brought out on the battlefield, they lost. And they lost ten times worse than they did initially almost, with 30,000 lives being lost. But that wasn't all that was lost. We saw that Phineas and Hophni, who were the sons of Eli, they were killed on that day. And even worse than that, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. See, the story of, uh, of the failure of godless carnal religiosity doesn't ever end there. Rather, there is always a cost. There is always a consequence of carnal, godless religiosity as well. There's always a cost. There's always a consequence. And that's what we'll see. We'll see the cost and the consequences of carnal, godless religiosity as we continue our study in chapter 4. The point of the passage that we come to today as we consider these things is that when God's people insist on disobedience, rebellion, and idolatry, God has a long history of withdrawing His power and His blessing. He has a long history of withdrawing the power and blessing of His presence, or at least the sense of His presence. In fact, Israel's entire history is kind of summed up by what we see unfold throughout 1 Samuel chapter 4, as we'll see before we're through today. But ultimately, you might ask the question, why was the Ark of the Covenant lost to the Philistines? And the answer ultimately is that it's because it pleased God for it to happen that way. And now we see what happens when news of this gets back to Shiloh, where Eli, the former priest of uh, the tabernacle, awaits. Uh, so let's start with verses 12 to 18. It says, Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly and told Eli, now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see the man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, How did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken." 
When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel forty years. What an interesting scene. This man from the tribe of Benjamin has run a total of somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 miles to deliver the news of what's happened out on the battlefield, that Israel has been defeated and that the Philistines have captured the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, His appearance, this man's appearance, is described for us as he arrives. We're told that he's wearing, wearing torn clothes and that he has dust on his head. And as we try to see all of these things through the eyes of people who first read it, the ancient Hebrew people, we should immediately catch these details of his description. Two details, because this is a description of somebody who is mourning and grieving over something. For example, consider what we read in Joshua chapter 7, verse 6, which was a couple hundred years prior to this. It says, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. They are repenting in that scene. Why did they do that? Because Israel had been defeated in battle. Joshua 7.1, just a few verses earlier, tells us, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. And the end of the verse says, Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. And so, in their mourning, in their grieving, in their repenting, They tear their clothes and they put dust on their heads. So the imagery here in 1 Samuel chapter 4, it's connected to these same things, to grief, mourning, repentance. But the irony is that Israel as a whole really isn't even near repenting, at least not yet. But this man from the tribe of Benjamin, as he comes into the city of Shiloh, he apparently runs right past Eli, and he delivers the news to the city. But isn't it interesting that Eli, in his old age, is completely blind at this point, but we're told that he's watching the road. Do you see that? He's blind, but he's watching the road. We should note that once again, Eli is simply also referred to as just Eli, rather than being referred to as he was earlier in the book when he was referred to as Eli the priest. But it's interesting that once again, Eli is described as sitting on his seat. Now that's actually the same position that we saw him in back in chapter 1 when he was serving in the tabernacle uh, as he sat by the door to the tabernacle. But what makes this interesting is simply the fact that Eli is often pictured as sitting when he should be standing. He's complacent when he should be acting. I mean, if he's anxious, and he's apparently very anxious here, sitting isn't a very natural position. Rather, I mean, most people, when they're anxious, they, they pace, they, they've, they're, they're tapping their foot, they're doing something. Uh, he's not even in a posture of praying with his sons out on the battlefield and with the ark of the Lord out on the battlefield. But sitting, he's sitting. He, he's not doing anything is what we're supposed to see here. 
He's not doing anything and watching even though he's blind. What we should notice, what we're supposed to see about Eli at this point, is that Eli was a living, breathing, walking contradiction. So why is he anxious? His heart is trembling, we're told, for the ark of God. Now to give him the benefit of the doubt, we don't know if he had anything at all to do with the ark of the Lord being brought out onto the battlefield. We're told that the elders came together and decided to do this. Was Eli one of the elders? Maybe. Maybe not. We just don't know. He wasn't named as one of the elders, so we just don't know. But we can be sure um, that whether he was consulted or not, he knew that the ark was being misused. And as such, God himself would be offended because it was as if God were being misused just as the ark of the Lord is being misused. The ark was not at the disposal of the Israelites to use in whatever way they see fit. It wasn't supposed to be a super weapon, but that's what they saw it as. But before the Israelites, if you remember, before they entered into the promised land in the book of Joshua, they were instructed to destroy the carnal, godless religiosity of the people of the land. Uh, All the idols were to be destroyed. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 2 to 5, the Israelites were instructed this. God says to them, You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their asherim with fire. And you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this as they were toward their God, toward the Lord your God. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish His name there for His dwelling. And there you shall come. So God Himself was going to be the one who would tell them where the Ark of the Covenant goes. God instructed them where to put it in in Shiloh. But the ark was not supposed to be this massive weapon of war. It wasn't supposed to be used at the disposal of the Israelites, however they saw fit. It was to represent God's presence and blessing, and God was the one to determine where it should go. He was the one who instructed the Israelites in battle, promising to help them in battle. So no wonder Eli's heart trembled. He knew these stories. And he knew, he had to know, that God would be deeply offended by what was taking place. And so, we can understand why his heart was trembling. Maybe you know what it's like for your heart to tremble in fear. Maybe you know what it's like to be uh, just cast with paralyzing fear. Maybe you know what it's like to feel like You've even lost God's presence and blessing in your life. Sometimes even Christians experience those things. The feeling of of panic sometimes is experienced and suddenly you, you realize that you are just a million miles away from God. We call it backsliding. 
And we call it that because it's not that God has moved, God doesn't move, it's that you have, or, or that I have, or, or the backslider has moved. And it is a rightly terrifying thing to suddenly come to your senses and realize, when all of a sudden you realize, I, I really need God right now. And yet, you realize that your heart is far, far from Him. So, Israel has clearly backslidden. And backsliding has a way of stealing your peace. Backsliding has a way of stealing your joy and your assurance in the Lord. So no wonder Eli's heart was trembling. He was surely aware of Israel's backsliding ways. He was obviously aware of what his sons were doing as they ministered in the tabernacle. Surely he knew that Israel had backslidden. And I think he knew that God would not be used or manipulated or mocked. And that's what they did whenever they backslid. It's not that God went anywhere. No, God goes nowhere. He's immovable. He's unchanging. He's the same today as He will be tomorrow as He was yesterday and forever. No, Israel was the one that had moved. Israel was the one that had slid back from God. They had moved away from God. Their hearts are far away from God, even if their lips were blessing His name. So the messenger races right past feet and the loss of... What a contrast to the beginning. And we're told, and all the city cried out. What a contrast to the beginning of the chapter, right? Remember back at the beginning of the chapter, the elders of Israel got together. They decided we're going to send the Ark of the Covenant out onto the battlefield. And as they did, verse 5 said, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. Now, the whole city mourns. And they cry out, Loudly enough that Eli, who is completely blind at this point, can hear it, and he wonders what all the commotion is about. And so the man from the tribe of Benjamin comes back to him and gives him the news himself. He says to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And isn't that all he needed to say? I escaped from the battle line. If somebody tells you, I escaped from a battle line, it means I was running for my life. It means I was going to die if I didn't get out of there. And so that was really all that needed to be said. Because if a person needs to escape a battle line, you can be certain that things are not going well at all. But Eli, oddly, again, he's kind of a walking contradiction. He, he asks the odd question, how did things go, my son? Kind of a weird question to ask somebody who's mourning and who is telling you that he had to escape. Maybe he was asking this because he knew that his sons had gone out onto the battlefield with the ark. And he knew that God had vowed this to him, to Eli, back in chapter 2, verse 34. God had told him through the, the messenger that he sent to Eli, this will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. So maybe he was wondering, could today be the day? Whatever the case the messenger breaks the news to him. And he, there are three pieces of news here. And he gives him the news one piece at a time. First, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has also been a great slaughter among the people. 
That's terrible, terrible news. Second, and your sons, your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. That's hitting a little bit closer to home. The first one was close enough to home. This one really hits close to home. It's awful, painful news. But third, and the ark of God has been taken. Each piece of news is progressively worse than the previous one. Eli seems to have been prepared for the first two, at least to some extent, but he apparently was not at all prepared for the third piece of news, which was the loss of the ark of God. Uh, Eli had been given years to come to terms with the fact that God had judged his household and that God was going to, uh, to, to kill his sons on the same day. And he actually had a heads up on this years and years prior to actually losing them. So he's had time to come to terms with that. But losing the ark of God hits him differently, hits him harder, perhaps because it was a clear sign that not only was his household under God's judgment, but the entire nation was now under God's judgment. And with that last piece of news, we're told, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Now there's some possible indication here that he was not just beside the gate, but that he was actually up on his, on his seat on a wall next to the gate. Whatever the case, uh, this is the end of Eli's life and ministry. And not only the end of his life and ministry, but it was the end of the era of judges in Israel. And, and so we're given his epitaph. And his epitaph is, is short. It's very succinct. It says, Thus he judged Israel. 40 years. So he was the final judge of Israel. No previous judge's time had ever ended the way Eli's did, with Israel losing God's blessing, losing uh, the, the, the thing that represented God's presence and blessing with them, or being completely lost in darkness at the end of a judge's reign the way that they were here. Even Samson, who was perhaps the most godless of the judges, even at the end of his life, it ends on a high note, not Eli's. Not Eli's. As one commentator notes, this was, quote, a point in Israelite history lower than any since the captivity in Egypt, end quote. The thing that makes Eli dying by falling over and breaking his neck interesting is the fact that in the next chapter, in chapter 5, uh, that's what God is going to cause to happen to the Philistine god, Dagon. But Eli's legacy wasn't a good one. It was a dark one. It was a legacy of complete failure, both as a father and as a spiritual leader. So maybe we understand some of the requirements that are set forth in the New Testament for an elder, that his children be believers and that his house be in order because Eli couldn't say either of those things. So he's a warning to any pastor and anybody who aspires to be in ministry that these things, these requirements that we find in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, they're important. There's a reason that they are there. But you know, we really don't know all that much about Eli's life. All we know is that it wasn't marked by God's blessing 
when all was said and done. His life was actually marked repeatedly by one compromise after another. It was marked by things like compromise and apathy and inaction and blindness. How did it come to this, you might ask? How, how does it come to a point where this man who, who shouldn't have been the priest because it wasn't his family line, and yet he was put in charge uh, of, of the tabernacle, of being the chief priest of the tabernacle, how could it possibly go from, from that point to where he is here? And the answer is, we don't know all the details. We don't know, but we can say this. We know that disgrace pretty much always happens the same way. That is, one compromise at a time. One compromise at a time. One poor decision here, one tiny step away from God there, and another one over here, and before you know it, there you are, you're a million miles away from God. It happens. It happens. And so perhaps, just just perhaps, we can say that Eli, in the end, simply reaped what he had sown all of his life. Paul says this to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This is the way it works with God. You sow something, you reap something related. Uh, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 8 says, He who sows iniquity will reap vanity. What does that mean? It means you, you sow sin in the end. It, it was all for nothing. It was all for nothing. It was all an illusion of hope at best. You may know that you know. a few years ago I took up gardening. And I can assure you that there is only one reason that a tomato uh, plant will spring forth from the ground. And that is because it got planted there either by me or by somebody or perhaps by uh, a, a tomato the previous year falling to the ground and eventually uh, the seeds taking root. But it's because a tomato seed got planted there. You can't get a tomato plant any other way. And God wants us to see that such a connection also exists between sin and backsliding. And it is just a short hop, skip, and a jump from backsliding to apostasy. That's something we should be warned about. You you sow a sinful thought, you reap a sinful action. You sow a sinful action a few times, suddenly you're reaping a sinful habit. And before you know it, your habit becomes a lifestyle, and in the end, you leave behind a legacy of moral and spiritual failure. In the end, you reap vanity. So how do we avoid this? How do we avoid falling into the same trap that Eli fell into? The answer is by going back to the beginning of the chain and not sowing that. Not end up the way Eli ended up is to not sow to the flesh, but to sow to the Spirit. Now, 
the present moment, right now, right here. This is the time that you are planting seeds. One day you will reap some kind of harvest. What kind of harvest is it going to be? It depends on what you are sowing right now in your life. If you sow the wind, you will reap a whirlwind. A carnal life now results in Matthew Henry's words, in quote, a mean and short-lived satisfaction at present and ruin and misery at the end of it. End quote. Now when we talk about backsliding, which Eli seems to have done, we're not talking about, we're not saying that a, a, a true Christian, somebody who's truly saved, can lose their salvation. No, what the backslider loses is not his salvation, but he loses his joyful assurance of salvation. He loses his sense of peace of knowing that he has salvation. He has to question whether or not he was ever a Christian to begin with. If you're talking to somebody who claims to be a Christian, yet they have a long history of sin, what you tell them is, okay, you might claim to be a Christian, but you really have no basis biblically for claiming to be a Christian. And if they say, why? You say, because you've got this sinful lifestyle this, this, sin, this, this, this lifestyle of, of, of sinning unrepentantly, because the Scriptures clearly say this in, in 1 John 3, 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that if, if we sin, we aren't saved? No, John made it clear back in the first chapter of his epistle that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what he means by this is that the Christian's life is never, ever characterized by sin ruling over him. In the words of Paul, Romans 6.14, sin shall not be master over you. So if, if you take a glimpse at somebody's life, and we can never see the full picture. Only God ultimately gets the full picture, right? We get it. We, we see a small glimpse. But if it looks like sin has just been ruling over this person's life, sin has been their master, then they have no biblical basis for believing that they have salvation. First, to be justified with God through faith in Christ. And second, to act in obedience to God's Word. Now, that doesn't mean that disobedience to God's Word causes a loss of salvation. If it did, then our salvation is based on works and not faith. But what it means is that it leads, disobedience leads to a loss of peace and joyful assurance. So how do you get it back? If you find yourself backslidden, how do you regain your sense of peace and joyful assurance? The answer is by confessing your sin and resolving once again to walk in obedience to the Lord. In James's words, James 4.8, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. He's describing repentance, you double-minded. In the end, that's Eli. Eli is a reminder of what a terrible thing it is to be double-minded, a walking contradiction. 
Because what else would you call a Christian who says that they're a Christian and yet they are continually going back to a sin the way a dog goes back to its vomit? You're a walking contradiction. And Eli is a reminder of what a terrible thing it is to be double-minded. So this brings us into a dark time in Israel's history, as, as rightly declared by the wife of Eli's son, Phineas. Let's continue, verses 19 to 22. It says, Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you've given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. So here for the first time, we learn that Phineas had a wife, and actually she was well into her pregnancy when Phineas and Hophni brought the Ark of the Covenant out onto the battlefield. And as she hears the news from this man from the tribe of Benjamin who, who escaped and fled from the battlefield of the Ark being captured, and of her father-in-law and husband both dying, she begins going into labor. One of, the things, one of the things that I believe becomes apparent right here is that this woman was actually not like Phineas, who didn't know God. We're told earlier back in chapter 2 that he didn't know God. No, she actually appears to be a good, God-fearing woman unlike Phineas. It seems fairly certain that this was her first child, but again, we... We can't know for, for sure. What we do know is that having a son was normally, under normal circumstances, having a son was a high point in the life of a woman in that ancient culture. Uh, but this is a low point for Phineas's wife, who is now just recently become a widow. And despite the efforts of the women who were there with her as she goes into labor to comfort her and to console her, it remains a low point for her. And so she names her son Ichabod, which is a really uh, very significant name. Uh, you might recognize the name Ichabod from Ichabod Crane from the legend of Sleepy Hollow. The name means no glory or without glory. Uh, she, she says here, uh, the, 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 she gave him the name of Ichabod because the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. So whether it means no glory or without glory or the glory has departed, what we see is that it's a name that is meant to describe the current spiritual state of Israel since the ark of God had been lost to the Philistines. Now many passages in this book of 1 Samuel are absolutely loaded with symbolism, as we've seen and as we'll continue to see. But we can say the same thing about this passage. There is a lot of symbolism packed into this short scene right here. We see that Phineas's widow is overwhelmed with the pain 
of going into labor, of, of childbirth, which is a clear reminder, a clear connection back to God's curse on sin in the Garden of Eden. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, we read God says to Eve after her fall into sin, He says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Now, this isn't something that's unique to this situation. It's not that, you know, that, that this woman is the first person to experience pain in labor, not at all. Uh, but what we can and should notice is that the biblical authors usually don't include this detail of the pain associated with childbirth. And so we're, we're given a clear reminder of the curse, the, the consequence, the cost of carnal, godless religiosity. Another piece of imagery that we see here is that Phineas's widow dies shortly after giving birth, and thus she leaves Eli's grandson as an orphan. This is a picture of Israel. It's a representation of, of Israel who had chosen to become an orphan by turning away from the loving care of their heavenly father. The fact that her son was given a name that reflected Israel's spiritual condition in that time further supports that understanding of this imagery. But almost immediately after naming her son Ichabod, Phineas' widow herself dies, which is a picture of the utter anguish. Indeed, the overwhelming sense of desperation and desolation that falls upon a God-fearing soul that senses that God's presence and blessing are no longer there. It causes a state of absolute panic. Uh, commentator William Blakey writes this. He says, quote, Tell us that the sun is no longer to shine. Tell us that neither dew nor rain will ever fall again to refresh the earth. Tell us that a cruel and savage nation is to reign unchecked and unchallenged over all the families of a people once free and happy. You convey no such image of desolation as when you tell to pious hearts that God has departed from their community. End quote. As I read that, I was reminded of June of 2015. I was in the middle of preaching through the book of First John back then, but one Friday afternoon, after I had finished writing my sermon for the week, news came that the Supreme Court had ruled that states must broaden their definition of marriage. And this necessarily involved breaching the boundaries of marriage that God clearly lays out in Scripture. And I immediately knew when this news hit, and tears started welling up in my eyes, I immediately knew that this only meant one thing. It meant that our nation is now completely under God's judgment. And the book that I, that I turn to when I'm afraid, when, when I'm afraid of what the future holds and what might come as a result of God's just and righteous judgment, the book that I go to is Habakkuk. Uh, so even though I had finished my sermon for the week, uh, Friday night I decided to sit down and write another sermon uh, that I'd do a sermon series going through the book of Habakkuk. Why? Out of the same sense of desolation and desperation that Phineas's widow was experiencing. Because God will not bless a nation that celebrates sin, that calls sin justice that tries to manipulate God 
God will not bless such a nation. The fact is that the departure of God's blessing spells certain doom for a nation. Look at what's happened to our country since June of 2015. Anybody who was, a, was an adult back in, in June of 2015 clearly recognizes that this is a completely different country than it was back then. The moral freefall that we have experienced in these eight short years is dramatic. And Phineas's wife recognized that God's glory, his, his blessing, was no longer upon Israel. And it wasn't because the ark was captured, actually. That, that was just an... A, a, a symptom of a deeper disease, an underlying problem, namely that God's people, long before this point, had forsaken God and were living as spiritual orphans. The obvious lesson for us here is that we must never turn our backs on God the way that Israel did. We have to guard ourselves, guard our hearts, guard our minds against things that would cause us to backslide and end up a million miles away from God. Abandonment, thereby provoking feelings or a sense of abandonment by God. Do not grieve the Spirit of God, but yield to Him. How do, how do we do that? How do we yield to the Spirit? By taking the authority of the Scriptures that He has breathed out, that the Holy Spirit has breathed out, seriously. What else do you think is going to happen when you don't take God's Word seriously? When a person forsakes the authority of Scripture and the definitions that Scripture gives us for what is good and what is bad, what do you think happens but a loss of the sense of God's presence and blessing? And you see, it doesn't start at that point. It doesn't start at the point where you wake up and realize you're a million miles away. No, it starts with holding a low view of Scripture, perhaps viewing the Bible as a fallible book or a book that contains errors and contradictions. Uh, one compromise here, another little one over there. And, and before you know it, a person no longer believes the Scriptures. And once they no longer believe the Scriptures, they no longer submit to the Scriptures. And if you're not submitting yourself to the Scriptures, you are not submitting yourself to God because this is where we learn what God's will is. Once you abandon the Scriptures, you might say that you're a Christian, but what you end up doing is creating a God in your own image by embracing the parts of the Bible that you like and ignoring the parts that you don't like. And you end up with a carnal, godless religiosity just like the next person. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this, he said, quote, All the troubles in the church today and most of the problems in the world are due to a departure from the authority of the Bible. End quote. And this is exactly what happened in Israel in this scene. In one sense, God had departed from them. The, the, the symbol of His presence and blessing was God. Israel had departed from him by ignoring his word. And yet God's promises remained intact. Promises like, I will take you for my people and I will be your God. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. Similarly, for us as, as Christians, 
The Bible assures us that God will complete the work that He began in us. That's the first chapter of Philippians. Uh, I give eternal life to them, Jesus says, of those who savingly believe on Him uh, in John 10, 28. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. And those whom He foreknew He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Paul argues in Romans 8, 29, and 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. In other words, everybody who's justified will be glorified. You can't lose your salvation to begin with if you walk away and keep walking away. Quoting from Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, the word of Christ assures us in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The Bible assures us that God will hold us fast. So, so what are we supposed to do in times of trouble? What are we supposed to do if, if we, we were facing a time of trouble and we realize all of a sudden, wait a minute, I haven't been walking with the Lord in months. Maybe years. What are you supposed to do? Well, first of all, examine yourselves to ensure that your trust is entirely upon Christ and not in anything else. If you were to stand before God tonight and you were to say, why should I let you come into heaven? What are you going to say if your answer is anything but Jesus died for me? You need to check that. Our confident hope is not in anything else. But Christ. Our our confident hope is not in some object that only represents Christ. Nor confident hope must be upon Christ, the solid rock Himself, who's present by His Word. Uh, The Apostle Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 30.14 when he writes this in Romans 10.8, The Word is near you, it's that are in your mouth and in your heart. How close are those things to you? That's how close God is to you. And if he still feels distant, well, what are you supposed to do now? You're to draw near to him, knowing that he will draw near to you if you do. And not that he actually goes anywhere, but if you want to regain a sense of his presence and his blessing, you must be the one who has gone someplace else. And you must be the one to return. So return to him at once. See, the withdrawing of God's blessing, or at least the sense of God's blessing, isn't just a phenomenon that we find in the Old Testament. I mean, consider all the things that Jesus says to the churches in Asia Minor in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where Christ Himself warned those churches that if they did not remain pure, if they did not remain faithful, He held the sovereign authority and power to remove their light It's a serious business we're talking about. What is the cost of carnal, godless religiosity? The cost is a rightful feeling, a rightful sense of losing the sense of God's presence and blessing. So how do we regain a rightful sense of it? Consider what the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith says in chapter 18, first paragraph. 
It says, although temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and in a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. This is the part I want you to hear. Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. Did you catch those three things? There are three things that are listed there, and there are all these uh, Bible, biblical citations in the, the confession if you want to go see that for yourself. But the three things, are you believing in Him? And are, do you love Him in sincerity? And are you striving to walk in obedience before Him. If you can say yes to these three things, then you can be assured that you are covered by God's grace and you can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If you're doing those things and and God still feels like He's distant, my advice to you is quit following your feelings. Quit listening to your feelings. Instead, remind your feelings of what God has promised because His, His promises are more sure than your feelings. When God's people insist on living in disobedience, rebellion, and idolatry, God has a long history of withdrawing the sense of the power and blessing of His presence. And yet, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, He says in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. Friends, the sense of God's presence and blessing being withdrawn actually may itself be your greatest blessing if you ever experience it. Because when God's presence departed, or or, or seems to, feels like it departed from His people in Scripture, it served one purpose, and that purpose is to motivate His people to seek Him once again with all their hearts. Friends, if God seems far away, seek Him with all your heart. Because if you do, He promises that you will find Him and you'll recover the sense of His presence and blessing. You'll recover the joyful sense of assurance and peace that you have in Christ alone. As I mentioned earlier, what we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 4 is really a summary of Israel's entire history with God. Of course, the greatest instance of God removing His blessing from them came when Israel failed to receive her Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. If the glory of it was in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet sinful man put Him to death, made Him die a sinner's death on the cross. But even that did not lessen Christ's resolve to save His people, even when He was put to death, He rose from the grave on the third day to bring the promise of eternal life to all who believe on Him. And now, for those who do believe on Him savingly, nothing, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your promises that we find in Your Word. And for the way that they anchor us, anchor our faith to You. Oh God, teach us not to trust in anything. Let no thing, Father, obscure our need for You. Our sense of utter desperation to know You and to belong to You and to know to know that You will hold us fast and that our salvation is secure. Because Lord, if it were up to us, our salvation would not be secure because we are but weak and frail people who are blown this way and that way by the winds around us no, we're saved and are secured in our salvation because of your grip on us. We thank you, O Lord, that even when we wander, and even though we are prone to wander, you have called us to belong to you. You have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And you have started a new work in us that you will complete. Lord, teach us to be a people who desire constantly to be in the light and to walk in the light because you are in the light. Teach us, O Lord, to delight in pleasing you rather than pleasing ourselves or pleasing our neighbors. Teach us, above all, to glorify Christ and to be willing to bear the cost of standing for Him as we remember that the cost of carnal, godless religiosity is far more, more horrible than we could even imagine. We ask that Christ would be glorified in our lives and by Your grace we would cling to Him. In His name we pray. Amen.